after the week after the weekend. I know some some are coming in Wednesday, some are coming back next weekend, and some will be in and out. So that's the way camp meeting is, right? So we're thankful for you that are here, and we'll continue our study uh, in the book of James. What page are we on? Seven, because my I don't my notes are different as I said before. I gave the wrong page number yesterday. <laughs> page seven on your notes. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this beautiful, refreshing day. We thank you for the presence of your Holy Spirit that refreshes us spiritually. We pray now that you will give us a, a fresh outpouring of that Spirit today as we look into your Word. I pray one more time that you would hide me behind the cross and that I would not be seen or heard, but that you would be seen and heard through your word. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Verse 9 of chapter 1 of James. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation. Did I lose it already? Uh... Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field, he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also will fade away in his pursuits. So he starts out, uh, what's that? Okay, already back on, okay. <laughs> she got a new one ordered. <laughs> new one comes in tomorrow. So we'll try, we're going to try to get by today. <clears throat> All right, um, true riches. Verses 9 and 11 that we just, 9 through 11 that we read have really no direct connection to 5 and 8, 5 through 8 that we studied but they actually relate back to verses 2 through 4. So among the trials that the Christian of the first century faced were the hardships of poverty. So, you know, we think of trials with, you know, with the kids, like we talked about yesterday and things like that, uh, because of what we experience. And uh, th- their real difficulty was just trying to eke out a living. Uh, and, and we have some in this country that have that problem. But the, the fact is, we don't have anything like what they probably experienced and we see experienced in third world countries today. Uh, just trying to eke out a living. Uh, and so when they talked about trials then, they might have had a little bit different perception of it than we would today. And that's why James uh, addresses this particular description between the rich and the poor. And uh, so these first century Christians, a lot of them uh, that came into the church faced that hardship of poverty and they were also being exploited by the rich, you know, taken advantage of, uh, possibly low wages, poor working conditions, those types of things that we are aware of even in today's uh, in some places today. So the brother of low degree is a poverty-stricken Christian, one of my brethren, 
not just a poor man. The rich man seems to be the man who trusts in his riches and, and then is not a true follower of Christ. And of course, again, James is reiterating things that his brother talked about uh, in, in his various sermons and illustrations. Uh, so if a rich man is a wealthy and ungodly person, uh, there is a, a very stern warning there in those verses 10 and 11 of the tragic end of an ungodly life. So, uh, let's look then at the origin of true joy. So, the Christian brother, remember we, John said as we go on into James, we'll talk about how to accomplish this joy that we uh, initiated in our first study. The, the Christian brother can rejoice even under the grind of poverty. He does not enjoy being deprived of everything. Nobody enjoys being deprived. But he suffers. Uh, and he has a source of true joy, though, that lifts his spirits above the material limitations. Uh, he finds his joy in other things, things that money can't buy. So uh, the exaltation is that is what fellowship with Christ for a man's sense of worth in the sight of God. What a man knows, when a man knows that he belongs to God and uh, has learned to count important the spiritual values of life, he doesn't need the material advantages to be satisfied and joyful. So uh, apart from talents, education, possessions, abilities, each human being is of infinite value because each human being is the object of what we talked about in what John talked about in his message. He's a part of that infinite love of God. Uh, he is an object of that love. Then we see the failure of false security. Uh, the only source of true joy for the rich is that they shall be made low. <laughs> and they probably, remember the, the rich young ruler, uh, he kept all the commandments, but he was unwilling to give up his possessions. They controlled him. They uh, were what uh, we talked about in the afternoon study. They were what he had his eyes on, what he thought about, what controlled him. So, um, <clears throat> The rich man who remains a disciple soon learns what his master taught. A man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. The life is more than meat and the body is more than raiment. And those uh, the words of Jesus in Luke 12 verses 15 and 23. So the common question is this. How much is he worth? How much is he worth? The answer expected is a statement of the economic value when we think of that question, right? How much is he worth? We think of terms of dollars and cents. Is he a millionaire? Is he a billionaire? Uh, is he going to buy the Lakers after he goes to, moves to the Lakers? That's what they're talking about in Cleveland on the radio today about LeBron. Uh, so, I mean, we're talking about him in terms of worth dollars and cents. But Christianity insists that the true measure of an individual's worth is not what he has, but what he is. And that's what we've been trying to drive home in all of our studies, I think, this week. It's not about what we have, but it's about what we are. So James illustrates the short-term security of all material and, and, and merely human resources with a familiar biblical figure. 
uh, life is full of reminders of the transient wealth of, uh, of nature of wealth. Uh, severe illness, stock market going down, uh, the loss of a job, a, th- a, a thousand things we could throw in there. The, the, con- uh, the contingencies of life, those, it, what life is all about. Uh, it's what we deal with. Uh, but I just can imagine John sitting up in his office, general superintendent, you know, John, sitting up in his office and looking out the window. And he would have been looking out over Palestine, that, where, he, where he was, that Jerusalem is centered. And he would see the grassy hillsides and the flowers as they were blooming there on the hillsides, perhaps, reminded him that the flower of the grass probably... Uh, will fade they will the the burning heat would be uh what would cause them eventually to die out and lose their blossoms and lose their uh beautiful color the lilies of the field as they're described in matthew 6 28 uh so it was the hot east wind from the syrian desert which could turn the green pastures of uh, Palestine brown in a single day. Uh, so I can just imagine him looking out the window as he get, gives this illustration of what it's like uh, for those that concentrate and focus only on earthly pursuits and earthly riches. So the expression in his ways in the King James implies that the rich man referred to is the ungodly rich man who trusts in his riches. So he has somebody in mind, a, a, a type person, the one who has focused his uh, trust in money. And even though I believe that people can have money and still be godly, because we know people like that, uh, there are people that can't be trusted with money. I'm probably one of them because God keeps me poor. But uh, it's to keep me where I need to be, I think, uh, spiritually sometimes. Uh, but the word may mean, the words may mean the journeys of a wealthy trader. And uh, again, thinking, J- James thinking about what goes on in the economy of that day and looking out uh, and visualizing th- some of these things. Remember, in Paul's writings, he deals a lot with and talks a lot about soldiers. He talks about athletic contests. Uh, he talks about building and husbandry, but James is more like Jesus in what he t- talks about and uses to illustrate. Uh, he, he uses the wave of the sea in verse one, chap- in uh, chapter one, verse six. Uh, here in our lesson today, the flower of the grass. In chapter three and verse four, he'll talk about the fierce winds. In uh, chapter three and verse five, a wood kindled by a little fire. In uh, chapter 3, verse 6, the course of nature. In uh, chapter 3, verse 7, every kind of beast and of birds. In uh, verse 11 of chapter 3, a little fountain. In verse 12, the fig tree. And then in chapter 5, verse 7, the fruit of the earth. And, and in 18 of chapter 5, the heaven gave rain. He uses more of the natural thing. Remember what Jesus used? The fig tree. Uh, he talked about... Uh, the calming the waves and different I mean he was more into the nature aspect of it in his illustrations as well and so James again I, I, I even though he wasn't a believer I believe in my heart that he he followed Jesus around some 
and uh, heard what he was talking about, or at least listened to the stories as they were retold, because we realized that a lot of the events were retold uh, and eventually written down. And uh, so James, I think, probably had, and of course he grew up in the same household, and remember he was the, uh, he was the older brother, so he was bossing Judah around and the other brothers, telling him, you know, sweep up the sawdust, put the tools away. Remember, they worked in the carpenter shop, right? They were sons of Joseph. I would imagine they all had something to do to help out with the trade of that day and to earn money, to, especially after Joseph died and they had to support their mom, right? Because we don't hear of Joseph much after uh, the visit to the temple, do we? So we don't know exactly when he died, but we have to figure that for most of the, even the life of Jesus that he had already passed away and the boys would have had to pick up the trade, supported mom. And that's why when Jesus was on the cross, he gave that, the care of his mother over to who? The Apostle John. Because he wanted to make sure that what he had been doing was carried on. That somebody took care of her. Uh, and so it, it was just uh, a part of what he, uh, what he did. To, uh, they were all together. They were all family. So let's look now into verse 12, 12 through 18. Blessed is the man who endures temptation. For when he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by evil, nor does he himself tempt, tempt anyone. But each one, is, each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. Then, when desire has conceived, it gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is full grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brethren. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and comes down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow of turning. Of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we might be a kind of first fruits of his uh, creatures." So, first of all, he wants to give us a little bit more understanding of trial and temptation here. Uh, the word temptation has two general meanings. The first of these indicates afflictions or persecutions or trials uh, from circumstances, things, things that happen in life. Uh, it is a sense that James uses this, that word in, in the earlier part of the chapter, and in, and in verse 12, fearful that his readers... Uh, might misapply the term to inward temptation. Uh, and so uh, James discusses then more generally in the later verses that we read the meaning of the term as seeking after sin. So th- there's two general thoughts in, the, in, the, in uh, temptation. Uh, one refers more to trials, the other to actually the inward draw to being tempted towards sin because of the sin nature that we were born into. So first we see in that passage the reward for steadfastness. Uh, James here asserts that the man who faces trials with courage and joy is the blessed or happy man that we read about in chapter 5 verse 11. Later, Well, well, we may not get that far, but you'll read in chapter 5 verse 11. Uh, the word is reminiscent of the back to the Beatitudes. Again, I, you know, whether James was in the crowd or whether James heard 
from word of mouth, but it, it's a lot of the same type of terminology and thought process. But it's also found frequently in the Old Testament. If you look at Psalm 1, it, it is a psalm that, that talks about blessed uh, and happy is the man who uh, follows after the Lord. So uh, <clears throat> the crown was used by the Jews to represent the highest happiness. It was here that the crown of life may refer to some specific Old Testament passage, such as in the Septuagint rendering of Zechariah 6.14, the crown shall be for those who endure. So that is like the, the crowning event more than a physical crown. We see it represented picture, pictorially with a, with a crown, but it's actually more the crowning event of our lives. Uh, <clears throat> And it's for those that, who endure. Endures is to be understood as those who have faced trials that we've already talked about, and it's been rendered that happy the man who remains, happy is the man who remains steadfast under trial. So when he has been approved, similar to what Paul writes to the Romans in uh, chapter 14, verse 18, where he says, For he who serves Christ in these things is acceptable to God and approved by men. Uh, so we see also in 2 Timothy 2.15, be diligent to present yourself, approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Again, a lot of familiar quotes from 2 Timothy, as John said earlier in uh, his message Saturday night. The ultimate goal of the Christian is life eternal. The ultimate goal of the, of the Christian is life eternal. We are humanly in our minds are fixed on this earth and this physical body this is just a stopping off point this is our starting point for eternity and that and so it's hard to think in terms of eternity but that really is what we're all about as God's people uh, so our ultimate goal is life eternal it's a quality of life that begins here and now but culmination lies beyond the grave and this goal is here called the crown of life, a symbol that uh, is expressed in the words from Matthew twenty-five, twenty-one: Well done, thou good and faithful servant. And I think if you want something inscribed on your tombstone, I think that would be some of the best words that you could have. Well done, thou good and faithful servant. That really says it all about our lives, doesn't it? If we, if we could have that said. Um, and, and that would be enough. Well, the, the second thing we see in this passage, temptation does not come from God. Temptation does not come from God. Uh, it comes from the liar that we heard in, about yesterday. He, it comes from the enemy. The stresses of moral choice bring a crown of life when one faces them steadfastly, but they can also raise questions in the mind. And when this happens, one has moved from the area of trials into the field of temptation. James has in mind the man who seeks an excuse for his failure to be steadfast, who says, oh, this temptation is too hard for me. God is to blame for sending it. And, and I, you know, I've dealt with people and heard of people that because of a situation in their lives, they blame God for it. And it's kind of an easy way out to blame God. Uh, that way they, they can uh, make excuses then for not believing in God or, or trusting God. But the author says, let no man who feels an impulse to commit, say, commit sin say, I am tempted by God. God permits trials to make us strong. 
but He never entices us to do evil. God is a holy God. His whole plan of redemption was designed to destroy sin. Think about that. That's from the very beginning, when sin ha- once sin happened, it was plan B. Some find some way to destroy sin. And through Jesus' death on the cross, we have the avenue for, for, uh, that, that where sin was destroyed. And we, the only way we get hooked back in is like John said yesterday, when we believe in the liar and what he's telling us. That's temptation. And that's what James is talking about here as well. So, because of his very nature, he... Uh, God cannot be uh, tempted by evil, and to encourage one of his creatures to sin would be a violation of the purpose for which he gave his only begotten son. Why would he be done that uh, if he was going to then tempt us to sin? He's trying to get us away from sin. He's trying to bring us back into relationship uh, and into uh, him in us, as we've been talking about this week. God permits the possibility of evil and it's sometimes, uh, uh, it's sometimes attractive forms in the moral world, but he does not wish us to yield to the temptation. Uh, just The story of Job is a good one. He allows temptation, he allows things, but he doesn't cause things. Temptation, though, comes from within. That's the third part here in verse 14. James knew the supernatural powers of the devil at work in the world, but, he, but here he seeks to drive home a man's personal involvement and responsibility for the sins he, he has committed. The lure to evil is within our own nature. John Wesley said, Everyone has desires arising from his own constitution, tempers, habits, and way of life. We all have them, John Wesley said, but is somehow entwined with our freedom. The issue is, would I rather be free, tempted, and have the, resp- and have the possibility of victory, or be a good robot? <laughs> what, that, that's the question. Would I rather be free and tempted and have the possibility of victory, or just be a robot? The robot is without temptation, but it also does not know the dignity of freedom, or the challenge of conflict, and it knows nothing of the exhilaration of the battle won. That's one thing that uh, a drone or it's, it's some types of, of warfare today take the emotion out of it that was so much a part of wars in the past and, and the victories won. James says a man is drawn by his own desires or lust. That's, that's how it's put in the King James Version. Uh, this word epithumia can have a neutral meaning, neither good or bad, or yeah, neither good or bad. Uh, Wiley, Orton Riley writes, all appetite is instinctive and unreasoning. It knows nothing of wrong, but simply craves indulgence. It never controls itself, but is subject to control. So Paul says, I keep my body I keep under my body and bring it into subjection, lest that by any means, when I preach to others, I myself should be a castaway. Uh, that's in 1 Corinthians 9. Oswald Chambers wrote, The test by an alien power of the possessions held by a personality. The test by an alien power of the by a personality. 
This is perhaps the sense of which James uses the word here. So the way to cope with temptation is the way Jesus met the tempter in the wilderness. Jesus gave us the example of how to deal with it, right? You think for 40 days without food that he wasn't uh, feeling the stress when he was under these temptations? Uh, And he could endure, certainly we can. But he was spiritually prepared. One of the things, if if you read through the Gospels, that I always uh, think, uh, have thought about, that many times it's recorded, and I think it probably happened all the time, before and after every thing that Jesus was uh, involved in, whether it was where the crowds came and he was, did healings or the feeding, feeding of the multitudes or the calming of the sea, before and after he was in prayer. And many times it's recorded. But I just believe that if it's recorded that many times, that were, it was perhaps the habit of Jesus that before and after everything, he prayed. Is that, isn't that a good example for us? Wouldn't that help us to resist temptation many times? Is it before and after the trials of life, before and after the, the big events of life, before and after those things that would cause us undue stress? And, and so we have here that before he went into the wilderness to be tempted, he was spiritually prepared, anointed by the Spirit of God and fortified by prayer and fasting. He met each suggestion of Satan with what? The Word. Scripture, the Word of God. Every, he, that's how he dealt with temptation. If we're not in the Word... Many times we may not be able to deal with temptation because the word is our way out. The devil is scared to death of the word of God. The the demons tremble when the word is spoken. So he met every suggestion of Satan with the word of God. But of key importance was the fact that Jesus made an immediate refusal. He didn't debate the issue with Satan. He immediately said no to every temptation that was offered. He didn't toy with temptation. And that's one of the problems people get into. Well, I, you know, I can go this far, and I'll be all right. I can do this, and I'll never yield all the way. I'll never go as far as that. They toy with temptation. Jesus said no. That's our example. That's the way we need to handle it. So those who do toy with it find ways to rationalize and even excuse their surrender. The best time to kill snakes is when they're small. <laughs> I was watching this Animal Planet thing where they're they hit up in Vermont, somewhere. They tag their snakes, poisonous snakes, so they know where they're at. They got a GPS chip in them, so they know where they're at. Uh, that's one way of dealing with snakes. But a better way is to get rid of them when they're small, before they become a, a problem. Uh, I know Florida's dealing with a big problem with snakes because of people setting their pets loose, and now they've uh, produced so much that they're all over the... And they're, they actually hire people to hunt them down and get rid of them. Uh, they got bounties on them. Uh, it, it, you need to get rid of them when they're small. Desire entertained and fondled in imagination can become almost irresistible. Billy Graham says of temptation, 
The Bible is the only thing that can combat the devil. Quote the scriptures and the devil will run. Use the scriptures like a sword and you'll drive temptation away. However, in most instances in the New Testament, this word epithumia has connotations of evil. If this be the meaning here that James is using, when a man is drawn away from a straight course, it is by a wrong desire. And so Tasker writes concerning this, this verse, in fact, so far from being opposed to the doctrine of original sin, substantiates it. James would undoubtedly have agreed with the statement that the imagination of man's heart is evil from his youth. Uh, Again, documenting or uh, saying in his own mind that there is original sin, that if we're not careful to deal with that, uh, as well as our sins committed, that we will never uh, overcome as we could in this world. Lustful desires, as our Lord so clearly taught, are themselves sinful when they have not yet issued uh, in lustful actions. That's what uh, Tasker finishes up saying by saying. So if this interpretation is accepted, there is here a further dimension to the origin of temptation. Wrong desires may be wrong, not only because they are uncontrolled, but because, apart from the Holy Spirit's sanctifying presence, they are carnal. So that's why we talk about getting a double dose in the holiness movement. Salvation, freedom from our, our forgiveness from our sins, and then sanctification, the cleansing from that nature of sin. And John talks about it in the, in the sense of continual cleansing. Continual cleansing. We need the cleansing every day. We need His Spirit. We need that power. We need that cleansing action going on consistently in the world in which we live. In verse 15, the tragedy of indulged desire. Um, In in verse 14, lust or desires probably refers generally to any enticement to evil, but the language is most commonly associated with an inducement into sexual sin. And James picks up this figure in 15 to trace the course of evil from a wrong thought indulged to a sinful act to God's judgment then on the sinner. A wrong thought has conceived when we have given it the consent of the will. And so then, the, the, then follows the act itself. And when it is full grown, refers not so much to the completed act of sin, but rather to the accumulation of evil de- deeds that constitutes a sinful life. So what starts as a, a simple sin will compound itself if it's not dealt with. It, it'll grow. Uh, and when it is full grown is the term or the words that James uses there. Phillips interprets the verse the way, that way and then links it to verse 16 by saying, and sin in the long run means death. Make no mistake about that, brothers of mine. So he, he links it together. Uh, and then... It, In in verses 16 and 17, we see that God gives only good. The turn is sharp here now. It says, do not be deceived. Do not wander so far in your thinking as to believe that any trial or any temptation comes from an evil purpose on God's part. It does not come as something from God, uh, on God's part. God gives only what is good, and He is the source 
of all good things. God has made us the kind of persons that we are. And when creation was completed, what did he say? When he saw it, it was good. It was good. Moffat translates the first part of verse 17. All we are given is good and all our endowments are faultless. The father of lights that we see in that, in that verse 17. Doubtless has a double reference. It refers to God as the creator of the lights of the physical universe. Let there be light. And there was light. The sun, the moon, the stars. But he is also the father of all spiritual illumination and blessings. So he's not only the physical creator and sustainer of light, but he is the spiritual creator and sustainer of light in our lives. James here contrasts the hourly changes in the sun and the moon. Again, using the, the references of nature with the unchanging character of God. The lights in the heavens may change from hour to hour and cast shadows where they have previously given light. But in God's character, there is no variation, neither shadow that is cast by turning. So that's kind of a vivid way of of explaining or expressing the absolute dependability of God. The absolute dependability of God. His promises, somebody said that, his promises are true. I, I just heard that recently. His promises are true. It follows as an assured consequence of God's unchanging character that in His dealings with us, there is never the slightest variation of shadow or inconsistency. And finally, in verse 18, the glory of God's plan. Does us refer to the writer and the reader? Well, the truth is significant in either case. If we understand us to be men, in the image of God, the meaning is clear. God made us the way we are. Of His own will, He did it. The reason for our freedom, testing, perplexities, and moral problems involving choice is that we should be like Him. A kind of first fruits, James says, of His creatures. He created us free to in order that we should be, in a measure, the Creator's of our own spirits, the crowning glory of His creative Word. But we may also, with uh, strong scriptural evidence, understand us to, us to refer to the Christian church. Uh, Robert titles his discussion on this verse, uh, verse 18, the new birth. God, who is our Father through creation, is also our Father through redemption. Men redeemed from sin are the crowning glory of God's purposes for human life. The first specimens of His new creation. So the word of truth is understood to be the truth of the gospel. God's final purpose is to bring us victoriously through our tests to make us like Himself in holiness and love. The glory of God's plan. Well, I went through that pretty rapidly because I knew that was a little bit longer today. But now we'll open it up. Yet, any thoughts or questions on any of the of what we discussed today, or what we went over? <clears throat> Lots of a lot, a lot in there.
what, what I recommend is, I recommend this to everybody. It, it, I talk about it in my Sunday school class. I talk about it in, when I preach. Is obtaining a, uh, all right, a study Bible. <laughs> it, went, it went away from me real quick there. Um, one, one of the good ones uh, that, that I found, and I don't even think they're available anymore, is the New King James Version with the study Bible. Is, that even, is it still available? Do you know? I'm not sure. Uh, because it was written, especially uh, with, some, with the Wesleyan perspective. And so it, it, it highlights more of how we think of things. And so I, uh, the, the New International Version Study Bible, isn't, I have that as well. It's, it's not that bad. Uh, but I really you know, think that uh, you, you, maybe even a, a commentary or something like that. Uh, but I always recommend reading along with a study Bible or something to help you that maybe cause more thought. Uh, something that, because a lot of times they'll, they'll note what other people thought or said. Uh, and I, I, I know personally uh, the writer of the commentary for Mark and Hebrews in the King, New King James, uh, Dr. Cockrell, wrote those. And a good friend of mine, and uh, he's all, I, like I told you the other day, he wrote the commentary on Hebrews that's about that thick. And I've read about a third of it and tried to digest it slowly. But uh, he, he, he kept it a lot simpler in here. But I recommend that because it kind of helps. So as, as you study the, the scriptures, um, you know, take advantage of the material. Now on the internet, you can find almost too much because you can find commentary that's really kind of far out but so be careful maybe you talk to your pastor or someone that you trust uh what might be good research material but uh, anybody have any 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 thoughts or suggestions Possibly even more like a promotion, you know, and so, you know, they, they don't really understand that. I, I guess the song Beulah Land, all right, I use this as an illustration, is incorrect theologically. I don't know if I ought to talk to Brian about that, but because it talks about Beulah Land as being heaven. But Beulah Land was Canaan. That was the promised land. If you look at... Uh, the, the real shadows and and of the Old Testament and what it what it meant in in terms of the plan of redemption, and, and so there's a there's a dwelling place here for God's people, and and in that is where we live holy lives before Him and and continue to grow and continue to seek Him because He's in us. We want more of Him. We want to know more of Him, and and. And, and be able to even express more of him. And so uh, I think, you know, it's, people have just, you know, maybe just not gotten that concept because it's not preached as regularly as it used to be. Um, and so there, there's not that same thought process that we used to have when it was. I, is that to, 
Is that what you meant? We think of the kingdom of heaven as something that happens or that we enter when we die. We don't think about the kingdom of heaven being here on earth. And it is. Uh, if you look at the scriptures, um, you look at the Lord's prayer. I think if, our, if that mindset changed, then we started realizing we're in the kingdom of heaven now because of first steps that we're taking in it. Our way of living has changed. Because we would live out our right. Have that practical holiness living right here. That's a good thought. That's a good thought. No, no, but but yeah, it's the process is in in the in the kingdom. I mean, the church should be part of the kingdom. I mean, right? And I feel like there's so many people that, you know, not that they don't believe, but they they keep putting it off and saying, you know, I've got plenty of time to live and I'll get serious about it later. And they miss out on all of the, like you're saying, heaven on earth. You're missing out on all of the, the beauty of life that can be part of now. Like it's not then I'll, I'll still get to heaven because, which, first of all, you, there's no guarantee because any moment could be your last, but there's so much more to it than just that end result. Anna? What do you mean in it? Well, my aide thinks you have to be in the Word all the time. And she brings her, her Bible to work, and, you know, constantly in, in the Bible, in the Bible. Do you have to be in the Bible that many times a day? Oh, I'm not, I think that's a little difficult. I think that's a little difficult. <laughs> I mean, uh, one, you need sleep. <laughs> and the other thing, if you have a job that doesn't permit that, I mean, that's a little difficult. But we should have, it's like a, like it, it's like I told Matt this morning, Bible reading and devotion is part of our stewardship. We, we get hung up on stewardship, we think of tithing and giving, right? It's first thing, when you think of stewardship, what's the first thing that comes to your mind? But that's only a, that's only a part of it, because the, the Christian life is a discipline. The Christian life is a discipline. Part of it is giving, because that's, the Bible talks about it. it Tithing, God doesn't need our money. God doesn't need our money. God doesn't need our time. God doesn't need anything. We need it. We need to give. We need to be in the Word. We need to spend time in fellowship with God's people. We need those things. God doesn't need any of it. God desires it. God promotes it, but God doesn't need it. Because God has all the money He needs. God has... All that he needs. He had the angels, you know, as far as if he just wanted somebody to bow down and worship him. But he wanted more than that. And so he gives us opportunity to share in that, to relationship. But it goes back to that stewardship. Our time in the word should be part of our stewardship. What we give back to God should be regimented, in other words. 
when it, it, at a t- it should fit into a time. Uh, I, it, what was what's the name of the movie um, about prayer uh, that came out a couple years ago? Yes, the war room. We need a war room. Whether you have a closet like was in the movie, or or a, a lazy boy that you pray at, or, or or wherever you find your war room, you need a war room. We need a place where we can steward our, our time and get along with God in the Word, in prayer and devotion, uh, because He speaks to us in those times. Uh, no matter what what's her name on the view says, He speaks to us. You should have time alone with God, and you should have, I think, time with God's people and fellowship, because we learn from one another. I mean, it's all part of the, the stewardship of our time and our, our lives. And so, you know, what we have available to give to God in our talents and abilities should be part of our stewardship. What we have financially should be part of our stewardship. What I found out in life, I, I told you the other day I grew up poor, didn't realize it until I was older, but we grew up poor. But, and God has blessed me through my life financially, okay? I'm not rich, but I have, you know, have had enough to support. We, I mean, not, the kids didn't always think we had enough, but, you know, we've done a lot better off than I ever thought I would financially, okay? But I found one thing as, as, as things got better in life financially is the more I give God, the more I found out I can't outgive God. And I'm not talking about financially, because I, don't, I really don't care how much I have in the bank as long as I have enough you know, to live. But what I really care about is how much I have of Him. And the more I give, the more I steward my life financially through my talents and abilities and through my time and, and every aspect of my life, the more I give to Him, the more I realize I can't outgive Him. He just gives more and more. So, yes, we need time. We need to regiment time. Uh, the, I, told Mark, uh, I told Matt about the book Dare to Discipline. There's other books out there that talk about that. You know, uh, and then we have to ask ourselves the question, the age-old question. Not, it's not what would Jesus do. That was the wrong question. The question is what did Jesus do? What did Jesus do? And that's the way we should model our lives. What did Jesus do? Because he spent as much time as he could in giving himself to God and to the work in the time that he had. And that's the example that we have. So... Anyone else?
Anything else? Any other thoughts? The reason, I, the reason I say, what would Jesus do, that leads too much up to conjecture because the guy says he needs a $56 million jet because Jesus wouldn't ride around on a donkey today. So we can, we can kind of blow that out of proportion. But if we look at what did Jesus do, <laughs> then, we, then we really have the example. Oh, I know, it's, it's okay. It's okay. I, I, we, uh, but the, but the, the fact is, uh, we want to be like Christ. Let, let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. And uh, that, that, in, that then entails holiness and love and all those things that we've discussed and talked about. Um, and we'll continue to talk about, not only during camp meeting, but hopefully that's what your pastor talks about. If, you don't, if your pastor doesn't talk about the things, all right, I'm going to get nasty. If your pastor doesn't talk about the things that you, you know are from the Word, okay, then you need to find another church. <laughs> you need to find somebody that preaches the Word. We need to be in the Word, and we need to hear the Word. And, and so it, it's more important than all the fancy stories and all that kind of jibber-jabber that we hear on TV, evangelists, and all that kind of stuff. We need to be in the Word and, and, and really know it. Don't take anybody's word for it. The one, thing, the one thing we learn from our Baptist brothers, Brian, they're in the Word. And uh, that's the one thing I learned. They, they, they ingrain from the time that their kids are very young to be in the Word. And we need to do that in the Wesley movement too. It's important. So that's all I have today. God bless you. Thanks.